It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Something certainly big developed in my life, and it is the bane of every radio announcer in the country, and that is a chronic cough. Long-term listeners to this program will probably remember those days. Certainly my engineer is he's shaking head yes with his finger dutifully poised over the mute button during that period of time. We'll call what I thought was a season of dealing with post-nasal drip. I'm an allergy sufferer. It's something that's been in the family. So uh, for me, it just seemed to be load up on Mucinex and make sure you take your allergy medication. And surely this will finally go away. Well, days turned into weeks, turned into months. The cough became worse. And I'll never forget my reaction going into my doctor's office describing the symptoms And the next thing the doctor did was hand me a prescription for anti-reflux medication. And I sort of laughed it off and I said, wow, what, me? I don't even suffer from heartburn. This cannot possibly be acid reflux. There's something else going on here. Of course, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I played one on the radio. And of course, the Internet gives us all the answers, right? So I would certainly know more than my physician would, wink, wink. To which my doctor replied, give it a month. If it's still an issue in a month... You call me, we'll take another look at it. Well, within a couple of three weeks, it was clear that my doctor had nailed it right on the head. That as I've gotten older, and as our diets, quite frankly, are not what they used to be, this became a pretty bad problem for me. But is medication necessarily the singular answer to dealing with acid reflux? And if not, what can we be doing to address this issue, joining me now is celebrated physician Dr. Jamie Kaufman, author of a number of best-selling books, including Dropping Acid, The Reflux Diet Cookbook and Cure, The Chronic Cough Enigma, and her latest book, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet, that includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free. Dr. Kaufman is one of the country's leading laryngologists and founder and director of the Voice Institute of New York and serves currently as professor of otolaryngology at the uh, the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai. And Dr. Kaufman, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. And boy, is your story an exemplary one. You know, it just kind of a textbook in that regard, and it was just one of those issues where, uh, I mean, I've suffered with allergies my entire life, and all of a sudden I started noticing this this cough creeping in, and could not have believed that it would have ever been associated with something like acid reflux, but at the end of the day, that certainly seems to be the case. But I, I suppose the big question is this, you know, we're in this society today apt to want to take a pill to fix things that typically addresses symptoms, but doesn't get to the real causes. So I guess just leading out the gate, perhaps we can use myself as a guinea pig here tonight, Dr. Coffin. Um, is this a case where all of a sudden in my early 50s, my stomach is producing more acid than it should? Or what's really going on here? Well, first of all, reflux simply means backflow. So it's backflow from the stomach. And the idea that people would have heartburn 
Everybody knows what that looks like on TV. You see somebody who's overeaten, who's uh, burping and clutching his chest or bursting into flames. It turns out that this is actually incorrect. The majority of people who have reflux don't have heartburn. So that, that in itself is, a, is sort of a wake-up call. So, well, wait a minute. If they don't have heartburn or indigestion, uh, the, the next question is, what do they have? So post-nasal drip, chronic throat clearing, a sensation of a lump in the throat, cough, particularly a wet cough when you bring up stuff, um, hoarseness, particularly morning hoarseness, waking up in the middle of the night uh, with coughing and choking, gasping for air like a fish out of water, asthma, uh, allergy symptoms, and even sinus problems. So it turns out that there are probably 125 million Americans that have reflux, and only about 25 million of those people have heartburn as their major symptoms. So that means all these other things are a surprise. And not only are they a surprise to people like you, you, weren't, you were surprised when your doctor said you had silent reflux, but indeed they're also surprises to many physicians. So credit and kudos to your physician for getting it right. Now let's talk about exactly what's going on here. Uh, when we talk about acid reflux, and you referred to it just a moment ago, doctor, as silent reflux, what is the difference between that and traditional quote-unquote heartburn? Well, you know, if you think about it, I don't know how old you are, but I mean, I'm pushing 70. So when I grew up, my mother put dinner on the table at 6 o'clock. You, you could set your clock by her. And uh, the, everything was local. The, the chickens came from a local person. Um, all the vegetables came locally. We did not go out to eat very often. Maybe uh, once a month we'd go to a steakhouse or a, for a restaurant. And um, uh, uh, there was no fast food. People weren't drinking soda pop all day. So in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic, the reflux epidemic, the asthma epidemic, the sleep apnea epidemic, and a whole host of other medical problems that have exploded are actually all related, and mostly they have to do with how our diets and our lifestyles have changed. We eat later, we eat worse, we eat chemicals, we eat acids, and so on. Uh, if you asked me, however, what silent reflux is, Silent reflux is reflux that occurs at night while you're asleep. So you don't have heartburn. Maybe you don't wake up. But it causes all kinds of mischief, including in the sinuses, in the nose, in the throat. And then when you wake up in the morning, you have sinus, nose, and throat symptoms. So silent reflux is pre predominantly nighttime reflux. And it usually occurs with people who eat late, who eat too much in the evening, who don't have much breakfast or lunch, and who eat not very healthy foods. I have to wonder, too, doctor, in, in terms of the impact, I mean, in my case, it was clearly irritating the back of my throat, and the minute that we addressed it over a short period of time, suddenly this chronic hacking cough went away. But I have to wonder, too, I mean, acid, uh, I've got to imagine, for certain parts of the esophagus and upper throat area, can't be good. I mean, the stomach is designed to have acid, and, and acid serves a very important function, doesn't it? It's just when it gets to the wrong places that it becomes problematic. Well, you're absolutely correct. Not only is, is it not belonging in the throat, 
when you look at the lining membranes of, say, the vocal cords, those membranes are a thousand times more sensitive to acid than the esophagus. The esophagus is a swallowing tube that joins the throat and the stomach. In other words, that esophagus is pretty tough. It's designed for it. Even normal people who don't have reflux disease will have some reflux some of the time after some meals. But once it gets up into the throat, by the way, we've come up with a new term called respiratory reflux. And the reason this term came about was to alert people to the idea that any respiratory symptom, in respiratory is nose, throat, voice box, bronchial tubes, lungs, the whole respiratory tract, any part of that lining is very sensitive to acid, very sensitive to digestive enzymes. And so we see these people who have been misdiagnosed or, or uncertain of what's going on all turn out to have reflux. It's about, oh, I don't know, 90% of people who have a wet cough, uh, which is an awful lot of people. Chronic cough is, is one of the most common symptoms for which a person sees a doctor. Now, I have to wonder, in relationship to the impact that that acid reflux can have um, on some of those more sensitive tissues, does this also put, it at an, put us at an increased risk for certain types of cancer? It does. In my opinion, uh, you can get cancer without smoking, but not without reflux. And we're talking about esophageal cancer and lung cancer, throat cancer, and even mouth cancer. There's a lot of work that's been done on reflux, looking at the relationships between cancer and reflux, and reflux seems to be a big, big factor. Uh, we know for sure that a cancer of the esophagus, which is reflux caused, there's not much question about that, is the fastest growing cancer in America in terms of its incidence, up about 800% since 1970. So that's a big change, an eight, eight-fold increase in esophageal cancer. So we know that there's a relationship with cancer. But, but just as important is the relationship with asthma, with COPD, with cough, with all kinds of respiratory problems. And I think that if you look across the population, um, less than 1% or 2% are at risk of developing cancer, but a whole bunch of people are at risk for developing all these other things. By the way, including sleep disturbances and sleep apnea and snoring. They're all related in many cases, not all, but they're often related to reflux. And, of course, it, all of this begs the big question. If this wasn't an issue that was so widespread a generation or two ago, What's changed? Well, Dr. Kaufman hinted a moment ago to what's changed. Our lifestyles have changed. Our diets have changed. And we're taking perhaps the incorrect path to address all of this. Well, certainly it's great that uh, certain types of medications have been developed, including these proton pump inhibitors that can reduce the impact of acid reflux on uh, sufferers. Is it necessarily the only way to go when it comes to addressing this issue? We're going to get to that part of the equation as we continue our conversation today. We are uh, delighted to have celebrated author with us and physician Dr. Jamie Kaufman. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. Uh, this on the heels of a couple of other bestsellers on the topic, dropping acid, the reflux diet cookbook, and the chronic cough enigma. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our guest today is Professor of Otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital, and also a celebrated author. Her latest of three books, 
Dr. Kaufman's acid reflux diet. We're talking about this topic that impacts millions of American lives. And of course, the typical response to a diagnosis, Dr. Kaufman, of acid reflux by many physicians today is to do what my doctor did. And that is write out a script and say here, in my case, uh, 20 milligrams of uh, protonics a day and uh, call me in a month and let me know how you're doing. Uh, That would suggest, I would imagine in my own mind, that it's like to say somebody who's constantly taking aspirin for a headache, that that somehow is because they have a aspirin deficiency in their body. Uh, is this necessarily a case of my, of my stomach, in my case, uh, producing more acid than it should on its own? Or does a lot of this really have to do with lifestyle and diet? In other words, is this really manageable outside of taking medication? Not only is it manageable without a medication, there now is increasing evidence that the medicines that we thought were going to be so miraculous for reflux are not so miraculous. Um, right now, the, the, the group of, of medications called proton pump inhibitors, they include uh, protonics and Nexium, Dexalent, uh, Prevacid, uh, what have I left, Nexium. All of these medicines, they're, they're relatively powerful acid suppressants. But even if you take them, you still will make acid. So the best acid suppressant medicine doesn't knock out all the acid. That's the first thing. The second thing is we've now seen a relationship with these group PPIs, proton pump inhibitors they're called, with um, heart disease, kidney disease, bone disease, and most recently a question about uh, Alzheimer's. But actually, the most compelling argument against the use, and by the way, you were on the right way. If you're going to be on these kind of medicines, it should be in terms of weeks, not in terms of years. Um, the most compelling evidence against long-term use, and many doctors say, listen, just you know, take your pills and you can eat what you want. And the reality is that's not true. In 2014, there was a Danish national study of 10,000 people and they looked at these people and found that people who took the pills for several years had a, listen to this now, an increased, not a decreased risk, an increased risk of developing reflux-caused esophageal cancer. So what that says to me is that these pills knock down the symptoms but don't necessarily control the disease. And so that gets to root cause, root cause. Let's just say you get invited to a dinner party on a Saturday night, 8.30. And from 8.30 to 9.30, you have a glass of wine, perhaps. Or maybe you don't. You have hors d'oeuvres. And then you sit down to a rich meal, uh, uh, two, three courses, a chocolate dessert, and a pushback from the table at 11 o'clock or even midnight. Um, all the people at that dinner party are going to have reflux that night. You can't have a big, huge meal at that hour and not reflux all night. And so... Of the risk factors, if you ask me what are the most important sort of uh, defenses that we can all apply, not eating after 8 o'clock at night, not overeating, making sure you have a reasonable diet, meaning you eat breakfast, you eat snacks, you eat lunch, you get most of your calories before 5 o'clock so you don't have to have a major refuel when you get home from work late. And then uh, Soda Pop, my first book is called Dropping Acid. And it's not called dropping acid for no reason. In 1973, following an outbreak of food poisoning, the FDA said you have to have a little bit of acid in everything in a bottle or a can to kill bacteria. Unfortunately, 
uh, people who manufacture these have decided that lots of acid must be good if a little acid kills bacteria. So we now have basically everything in a bottle or a can with the same acidity as stomach acid. I know that's hard to believe. So cutting, out, cutting away from not only you know, a soda pop, but also other uh, beverages that are bottled, even things that look, look healthy like energy drinks and fruit juices have acid added. And then not too high fat. And so the, the bottom line is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. And alkaline or alkaline means um, not too much acid in the diet. By the way, I'm not a big fan of apple cider vinegar for reflux. Yeah, I, I've heard that reported as a, as a uh, one method of dealing with it. I, I never quite bought into that. I mean, for me, if I was really desperate, a little glass of milk seems to do the trick. Yes, milk is al- alkaline, by the way, for people who don't know. Um, alkaline is the opposite of acid. So if you take something that's alkaline and something that's acidic, it gets neutralized. And so um, of all the things out there, there's something called alkaline water. And indeed, a water will percolate through the ground and become anti-acid or alkaline. So alkaline water is really quite good for refluxers. And many people with reflux will tell how when they started drinking alkaline water, it helped their reflux quite a bit. So there is a degree to which trying to balance the pH levels does make sense. But as you're suggesting too, doctor, just in terms of of the the schedule and manner in which we eat, uh, not encouraging your stomach to go into high production of acid because it's just finished a huge meal and is now going to be working on breaking that down over the next several hours of we're sleeping is probably one of the smartest ways to start. Well, you know, let's just talk about what happens when you lie down. If your stomach's full, you lose gravity, right? Stuff doesn't run uphill as well as it runs through a flat canal. So you lose gravity. You lose the benefit of being upright. The second thing is if you, let's just pretend you're a little overweight. When you lie down, the weight of your abdomen, of your belly, let's just say you've got a beer belly, the weight of that belly is now pushing on your stomach. And for people who are really overweight, um, it doesn't really even matter whether they eat. They're going to be pushing on their stomach all night, even with a little bit of acid it's coming up. So being overweight certainly is a factor in eating um, and lying down. And, and by the way, it's not just, uh, it's a, let's just say, you know, you had a busy day at work, you finished late, you went and, went and exercised at the gym, you got home, you didn't really have time for lunch, you're starving. Um, now what happens is that you're having a, the biggest meal of the day at 8.30. So that, I've said it twice, and so I'll, I'll make it the last time. That's probably the greatest risk factor there is for silent reflux. So that gets to the question of what do you do? What I recommend for people, and by the way, you asked an important question that I never answered. How do you know if you have reflux? There's something called the Reflux Symptom Index, which is a quiz. It's on my website. It's in every one of my books. It takes about a minute to fill it out. You circle uh, nine items from zero to five. And if your score is 15 or more on the reflux index, then you have a 90% chance of having reflux. So you can look at those symptoms and fill out those uh, circles. 
and see if you've got uh, likely to have reflux. By the way, I did take the test, and I came in at a 27. So. Yeah, well, yeah, sir, that 27. <laughs> yeah. yeah, looking at all the symptoms based on what was happening at the time I was diagnosed a year and a half ago, uh, I said, okay, well, yeah, here we are, 27. I guess we answered that question. Hey, if you've just joined us, Dr. Jamie Kaufman is with us today. We're dealing with an issue that, quite frankly, millions of Americans are facing, myself included, and that is acid reflux. And as we're learning, the pill prescription might seem to be an easy way out, but it's not the best way out. And some of this research, including the Danish study to which Dr. Kaufman just referred to a moment ago, is in fact beginning to demonstrate that taking of medications to deal with acid reflux might in fact be exacerbating the problem and making the circumstances even worse. So what do we do? Certainly we know acid production is necessary as the fashion in which the body, the stomach, breaks down foods and processes foods for energy and calories that you need and all of that. But yet, our diets today, increased use of preservatives that are in there, as Dr. Coffin mentions, a high degree of acidity as a preservative in so many foods today. And when you add to that eating late, eating too much, it just becomes a recipe for disaster. All right, speaking of recipes, so then as we've understood what some of the causes are, and we know what the general medical community has done to try to address it, simply give you a pill, what's the better way out? If that's as needed, then how do we manage it better? And how do we deal with this matter of lifestyle and diet? We're going to get to that part of the conversation. Our discussion today with Dr. Jamie Kaufman, a look at Acid Reflux Diet, the new book, by the way, newly published, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. And you can also get it through Dr. Kaufman's website, voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. That's Voice like voice, all voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more remarks and insights as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. She is professor of otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital and also the author of a number of best-selling books, including the latest, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. We're talking about this topic of acid reflux, what it is, how to address it. So far, the medical community largely, and I don't wish this to be a blanket accusation, but largely the idea of writing a prescription, sending you home with some medication, seems to be the way we've addressed it. But as Dr. Kaufman is pointing out, that really is addressing a symptom. It's not getting to the root causes, such as eating too late, eating too much, uh, eating, uh, quite frankly, uh, the wrong kind of diet. And toward that end, let's get into some of the, the key points here, if you can, Dr. Kaufman. Uh, the book, by the way, I'll mention for listeners, has an exhausted list of complete entrees and recipes toward the back. As we mentioned, over 111 new recipes. But as we talk about some of the major categories, Dr. Kaufman, to avoid, which ones are sort of the worst when it comes to being contributory to acid reflux? Well, there are different mechanisms of reflux. So fat makes the, uh, uh, for reflux high-fat meals. Um, acid makes for reflux um, caffeine and nicotine. They make uh, the valves relax and make for reflux and uh, so if you, if you ask me what I recommend, if, let's just say you take the quiz and you say, gee, I think I have silent reflux or it's, it's a real possibility. What I recommend is a two-week reflux detox 
Um, it's not easy. The only fruit you can have is melons and bananas. The only meats you can have is poultry or fish. I consider fish like meat. Um, no condiments, uh, only egg whites. Um, nothing out of a bottle or a can except water or one cup of coffee a day uh, or tea. Uh, no alcohol. If you drink alcohol, it must be zero. And then the kitchen must close by 7 o'clock, assuming you go to bed at 11. So that it's a strict two-week detox. And usually what happens is in two weeks people go, whoa, my cough has stopped, whoa, my voice has been okay, or my throat clearing is better, or this lump in the throat doesn't feel so uh, worrisome and annoying. So at the end of two weeks, people then say, okay, what do I do now? The detox is listed in all the books, and it's easily found, this detox diet. And it's a list of things you can eat rather than can't eat. By the way, nothing fried, and the only uh, of the fats that we permit, no butter, is olive oil. So it's pretty, pretty tight. And when, if you really think about it, what it is is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. Lean, uh, there's no red meat or very little red meat thereafter, after the detox phase. You shouldn't be having red meat every day. Um, clean is a very important concept. If you have an energy bar that you love and you turn it over to read the ingredients and it has 16 unpronounceable chemicals on the back, um, presume that it's poison and you should try and find a new one that's much more natural and has fewer chemicals. I mean, many, many of the manufacturers are beginning to start taking out some of these chemicals and these preservatives. They're not good for you. And so that gets uh, to, to, to green. We know what green means. Green means organic, which is another way of clean. And also, of course, uh, 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 greens are good for you. So you start having things like this morning I had a three-egg omelet with one yolk and, and lox smoked salmon. And then uh, for lunch we got uh, roasted chicken with uh, vegetables and potatoes. For a snack I had a Fuji apple. Um, and uh, then an avocado. And for dinner, I had uh, a, a sushi. So, you know, I'm not saying you should eat like that every day, but it does represent a paradigm shift compared to, um, you know, two cheeseburgers, fries, and a Coke. And as you're suggesting here, uh, there are a lot of foods that are really triggers, essentially, that the stomach says, okay, I'm going to have a lot of work to do here. There's much more that has to be or something that's more difficult to digest, like red meats. And so, therefore, it's stimulating additional acid reproduction. Is that accurate? Well, it stays in the stomach a long time, red meat. And, uh, and, and by the way, you brought up a very important word, the word trigger. Um, you've implied that it makes more acid. I'm not sure whether it makes more acid, but it makes reflux of the acid that's in the stomach come up. And so among the big triggers, for some people, by the way, none of them, uh, these things that I'm going to mention are for everyone. Um, chocolate is a big trigger food for some people, particularly uh, milk chocolate. Um, alcohol is a big trigger. Uh, onions, garlic, tomatoes, peppers. Um, nuts, particularly macadamia nuts and cashews, the safest of the nuts for the refluxer are are uh, um, uh, pistachios and almonds. And um, uh, uh, too much caffeine, there's probably nothing wrong with a cup of coffee for most people, or two, or even three. But if you're drinking a pot of coffee before noon, you'd probably have reflux regardless of whether coffee is an actual trigger food. It's the caffeine. So, you know, the question is, what do people do? And in many cases, they, they double down on their mistakes. 
And so I think what starts to happen, the reason I've done what I've done, the reason my work um, is, uh, I believe, is important, is it, it addresses the basic question of what does represent healthy eating? What do we know today? And most and importantly, I think, I think, as you've underscored both in our conversation today and throughout the book, simply taking a medication and thinking we can take this one little tiny pill a day and eat whatever we want, whenever we want, is, is largely really been a, a wives' tale, hasn't it? It's dead wrong. In fact, I mean, uh, we, at least in my practice, virtually every single patient who comes to me is already on the medicine. So we know that there are millions of people who even on the medicine uh, are suffering. Uh, by the way, I should mention that it's not, it never should have been allowed to have these kind of medicines over the counter. And here's why. Uh, the medicine, uh, when you buy it, it says take it for two weeks. Well, what happens after two weeks is people stop cold turkey. And about half of people, when they stop cold turkey, then that's when you get this hyperacidity. That's when you have this, what we call, rebound hyperacidity. So what happens is they were doing sort of okay for two weeks, and they quit, and they get terrible symptoms. And then what do they do is they, they, they tough it out for a little while, and the next thing, yeah, they're back on the medicine for two more weeks. And so although this is good for drug sales and for the, for, for the manufacturers, it's not so good for people who do it. So this question about medication, I should point out that there is another class of medicine that, that is safer and that can be taken on an as-needed basis. And although it's a medical term, they're called H2 antagonists. And the three that are available are Zantac, Tagamet, and Pepsid. And those three are much safer over the long haul. They can be taken, gee, I'm having some symptoms, and I'm going to take these for a few days or a week and even longer. And, in fact, we use them in pregnancy. Interesting. At the end of the day, then, doctors, you're suggesting that the, the, the real way to address this issue is by a change in lifestyle and diet. And that then raises, I think, uh, the, the final important question for everyone eavesdropping on our conversation, and that is of your patients that move toward the healthier lifestyle and the, the more friendly diet, how many are able to get completely off of any sort of, uh, of the proton pump inhibitors and be able to remain essentially acid-free? in terms of its impact? The vast majority, when patients come to me, they're highly motivated. People who have, you know, terrible problems, breathing, people who have had multiple sinus surgeries, people who are miserable. Um, those people um, who are willing to stick with the program, what I tell them is, listen, you're going to be under my care for a year. Um, you're going to go on medicine to start out with varieties of different types of medicine, not just acid suppressants, by the way. And the goal is to be medicine-free and asymptomatic and essentially healthy without any reflux a year from now. And that means that they will have, in many cases, lost weight. In many cases, their cholesterols are better, their diabetes is under control. So we're talking about basically a big, 50, you know, like a 50,000-mile tune-up. In my experience, 90% uh, of our patients uh, get substantial improvement, and the majority get well. Well, that's a pretty remarkable uh, response rate, and, and one that I think ought to give encouragement to all of us. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. It includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free, and it's available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order the book online through Dr. Kaufman's website, voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. That's Voice Institute 
www.thebestsellingauthorofnewyork.com. And our thanks to best-selling author and physician, Dr. Jimmy Kaufman, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There has been a long, steady drum beat, drums sounding against any notion of the inclusion of Christ or Judeo-Christian ethics in the public square. Uh, again, this notion that we've been making this slow shift from what had been the view, the vision of our founding fathers of creating a nation where there could be freedom of religion, which heretofore our founding fathers had not quite experienced in England, to an atmosphere today, uh, some 250, 300 years after our founding, that seems to be taking on a decidedly different atmosphere, that of freedom from religion. To get some insights on this, our special guest tonight as we lead off the program is Larry Towton. Larry is the founder and executive director of Fixed Point Foundation, an initiative dedicated to defending and promoting Christianity in the public square. He's also the author of a new book entitled The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief, newly published by Thomas Nelson and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as no doubt on Amazon.com. And Larry, great to have you with us on the program tonight. Delight to be with you. Why, this is interesting as we sort of watch, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess in many respects it's sort of the proverbial uh, frog in the kettle effect that we're seeing here in America today, where slowly and ever surely there seems to be this march, this parade, at least in the public arena, uh, where we've moved from the notion, as I said earlier, of a nation that provides freedom of religion to those that are now trying to recraft our nation into one uh, that provides freedom from religion. Well, it's like so many other things in our our culture that are gradually being redefined as they are uh, amputated uh, from their Christian origin. That is to say, from the from the anchor that that had once held fast uh, not just our our culture but our very vocabulary. So, for example, um, uh, tolerance is now understood to to mean. Um, diversity is meant to to uh, mean uh, uh, just the celebration of differences, no matter what they are. Supposed uh, as opposed rather to um, uh, a traditional American view, which is born out of uh, out of Christianity, that we seek to overcome um, our differences uh, for the sake of a, a uh, of one cause. Um, and these are the kinds of things that are happening. We're we're redefining family. Um, we're redefining the roles of men and women. All kinds of things. And as you have said, there is a there's a kind of slow leak, as I like to put it, of Christianity out of the culture. And in my book, The Grace Effect, I'm trying to give a glimpse to readers through through a narrative, through a very compelling, very real story of of my daughter, of what a culture looks like when it is completely led of Christian influence. And, of course, a lot of this is done with this notion, as those in the public square that are pushing this would try to promote, uh, that we don't want uh, any undue religious uh, in, uh, influence on anyone, that we're trying to create a society uh, of great tolerance here, and that the Christianity, for example, has a history of tremendous intolerance, and they will typically quote things like uh, the Salem witch trials of, of American history and folklore, um, and perhaps more history than folklore. 
simpler now that I think of it. But uh, from that perspective, as well as to things like, uh, you know, what happened with the Inquisitions in Europe, etc., etc., and, and they use many of these events to try and argue this notion that Christianity in, in particular, and maybe its companion religion, Judaism, are, are vile, evil, oppressive religions, and they're just simply trying to create an atmosphere of greater tolerance. Well, uh, that is just a bunch of sheer nonsense. Um, the 20th century was an experiment in secularism, and it was a century that saw well north of 100 million people dead. Now, that is that is more than all of the war all previous centuries combined. That's not just the you know, quote-unquote Christian offenses. That's the let's listen. Muslims and the mix and Hindus and and, uh, and Judy, all of this, none of them come even close to the horrors that we saw that were perpetrated secular regimes in the 20th century. Um, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't um, uh, the Jews who were uh, who were wiping out um, Germans. It was uh, uh, it was a, a fascist, a, a radically secularist uh, regime that was pushing these people into gas chambers and. Um, you know, saw uh, globally about 50 million people dead. Um, and this attempt um, at revisionist history uh, is something we all need to be very vigilant of, um, because uh, quite clearly Christ commanded uh, that his message to be advanced with the Spirit. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the, the poster boy for um, atheism, these days as a guy who makes these types of arguments. Well, as I, the point I've made to him is, you know, if I, if I kill you in the name of science, does that make me scientific? Well, of course not. Um, any more than somebody who says that they do something in the name of Christ. Christ himself predicted uh, in John chapter 16 that people would kill uh, in the name of God. Uh, would do these kinds of things. We, we know this, um, but we have to, to discerning about this. And I, and I will say this, even the radical secularists, you know, who are making these kinds of arguments that Christianity is dangerous, they are at least making some subtle distinctions um, uh, whether they want to acknowledge them or not. Notice that they're saying these things mostly about Christians, who are, as a rule, a tolerant people. Notice they're not saying them a, a whole lot about Muslims, uh, people who are known to be quite intolerant of criticism of, of, of their beliefs. Christopher Hitchens, also a famed atheist, and I write about this in my book, The Grace Effect, he and I, uh, he's a friend of mine, somebody I've debated publicly uh, and privately, we drove from his apartment in Washington, D.C., all the way to my home in Birmingham, Alabama. Along the way, we studied the Gospel of John. This was a follow-up to um, a challenge I'd made to him a couple of years before. I assure you, Christopher Hitchens does not get in the car with a Muslim in a bulky overcoat. Uh, you know, so he is making some distinctions um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, about Christians, whether or not they want to acknowledge this publicly or not. We understand what the effect of grace is. Uh, we understand that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that none should perish but all have everlasting life. So we understand the effect of grace. But now let's talk about this from the perspective of your experience in, uh, in traveling to the former Soviet Union, the Ukraine to be specific, known uh, by many in that part 
part of Eastern Europe, and uh, the former Soviet Union is kind of the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. And um, the efforts of your family to adopt a young Ukrainian orphan by the name of Sasha. Uh, yes. Um, I, I, I'll let me back up just a wee bit and, and say this. I think that we as Christians don't fully understand and appreciate grace. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. We speak of grace quite rightly as that thing which changes us, with, which transforms us in an instant when we repent of our sins and we receive Jesus Christ. Uh that's what we mean when we speak of grace, but that's, that doesn't mark the outer boundaries of God's gracious activities. There's another form of grace that he gives, and it's, it's what we refer to as common grace. And, and common grace is that, that grace, you know, Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount that God sent his rain and the sun, you know, on the, on the just and the, and the wicked alike, you know, that his goodness overflows even to those who, who, um, who don't believe. What I'm calling the grace effect is a, a particular a kind of, of manifestation of common grace, meaning this, that it's a kind of grace that God gives to a culture only when there is a significant presence of his people in it. And so my argument in the book is this. You know, my wife and I, we travel to Ukraine. Um, I think your, your uh, listeners will find very compelling this story in, in this book, The Grace Effect. And how um, we're uh, in this process, as you quite rightly mentioned, to, to try to adopt Sasha. And I've been in that part of the world many times. I've been in Ukraine four or five times before this, Eastern Europe, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Poland, and so forth. So I was not unfamiliar with that part of the world. I was familiar with its business practices and the corruption. But I guess I was naive enough to believe that we wouldn't experience it to the degree that we experienced it when it involved the life of a child. Every single uh, official that we encountered, we had to bribe. And this, this begins to raise some interesting questions um, about why is it that they have such a disregard for the least of these, for the widowed, the orphaned, the sick, um, the elderly? Uh, is it because um, Americans are just innately better? Well, no. Uh, scripture would tell us that human nature is the same the world over. But the, the, the uh, public discourse in this country, indeed throughout the West, has been gentled by the grace effect, meaning by the presence of God's people, our society has been made a little more tolerable. And if we haven't been made good uh, by it, we've been made a little less evil than we might be. And the result is we, we do have a concern for our poor. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. Streaming now on TuneIn and the Odyssey app, AM 1100 KFAX. Portions of our programming may be pre-recorded.